Welcome to Place by Design. You're watching a podcast dedicated to the exploration of places in which we live, why they matter, and how we plan them. This is recorded live in Southwest Michigan, and I'm your host, Garth Woodruff. Okay, so this week we bring you Guy Miller, who's an epidemiologist at the Berrien County Health Department. Welcome, Guy. Thanks, Garth. It's good to be with you virtually. It is good good to be with you virtually. You're the only guy in town that like I really actually have to do like a Zoom meeting with because all the rest of us were really just pretty much getting together anyway. But because you're the epidemiologist, it would look really bad for me to actually like meet up with you and give you a real interview. Yeah, that that would look really bad. And we should talk about that. Okay, maybe maybe some other time. All right. So um, as an epidemiologist, um, you generally take people's blood, right? (laughs) No, but I did do that once. Okay. No, I'm kidding. I know epi, I know it's skin disorders. So you, you mill around the county and you look at skin? Uh, nope, not at all. Never done that. Never done that. All right. So then, so then help me understand what an epidemiologist is. So, I mean, you were kind of close, Garth, when you thought epi, that, that's a good root word to break down. Um, but uh, think of epidemic and not epidermis. We think yeah, of uh, here. Um, and a lot of people do just abbreviate epi. And we get that all the time, actually. I don't know if I've mentioned that to you. People are like, oh, you deal with skin or something like that. No, so uh, epidemic. So we we study um, the disease kind of burden in a community and its geographical distribution throughout a, an area. So since I'm the epidemiologist for Berrien County, obviously I'm studying diseases and how they're kind of spreading or where they're at within Berrien County. And this is everything from infectious disease to chronic disease. So talking about diabetes, talking about heart disease, and talking about, I don't know, something like COVID-19. Really? See, I think COVID-19... You know, I think like, you know, when like mosquitoes sting too many things and people start dying, then there's somebody like you who mills around and tests deer and stuff like that. I don't think about like, you know, overeating or not exercising as an epidemic, but I think it could be. All right. Yeah, that's debatable about using, using that term epidemic when talking about obesity. Um, a lot of, I'd, I'd say more of, more of what I do is based on public health and not necessarily epidemiology to that okay. extent. Um, but there, there is like some debates about, I'm not, I'm not going to get into it, about calling it an obesity epidemic or the opioid epidemic. Oh, and right, so, right. So non-infectious diseases being turned ep- termed epidemics are, you know, um, not always the kosher, kosher way to talk about them. But really the truth is, is that um, nobody before March of 2020 knew who Andrew Como were or epidemiologist. And now the whole entire world's talking about all y'all. Everybody's going to know what an epidemiologist and who Andrew Como is probably for the next 10 or 20 years. It, you're a little bit of a celebrity now. That's what's happening. But I've got real questions for you. I've got heavy questions for you. I've got questions you need to prepare yourself for. All right. So... I teach a class at the university called environmental leadership. I'm actually going to use this video to uh, 
pollute their minds just a little bit because this week we're talking about ethics and values and things like that. And this, the whole COVID thing has become just an, an enormous cesspool of ethical conversations. Um, when I discuss it with like colleagues in town, colleagues at the university, so on and so forth. And it, and it just so happens that at the early onset of this, um, when it was just breaking out on the West Coast, I don't know if you remember or not, there was a cruise ship call, stuck off the coast. And uh, they, right, yeah, and they wanted to like, they wanted to like come into Oakland and, and get some people off. And of course, college students, they don't read the news, you know? So like I used this whole story as this like fictional ethical decision that they had to make, right? You're the president of the United States. There's a cruise ship off the coast. Do you let them in and then have these people infect the population of your country that you're, that you're you know, supposed to be protecting? Or, which is, yes, you do, right? And then, or do you leave them out there and you let them all die? And no, you don't do that either. And it's like, really, at the end of the day, this, this, um, this epidemic has brought up multiple different layers of ethical decisions where um, no matter the choice you make, if you're, if you're in that position, someone's going to die, right? Which, yeah. is, which is really why I'm glad that I'm not in that position at all. So this is, this, give me a minute to set this up. Um, so because of my role also at the university when it comes to environmental design and landscape design, I, I dialogue with the community all the time. Um, and a lot of the leadership, you know, they're reaching out to me and grumbling, you know, uh, you know, Governor Gretchen, she sh shut us down. We can't work anymore. Um, it's an economic problem. It's killing me. And then they've got these like posts that they post where it's things like um, uh, Michigan.gov has this aging service site where it talks about like in this epidemic, there are things that you can do to help the people that really should be staying inside, you know, maybe the older populations, you can go and blow their leaves and mow their lawns and do that volunteer work. And then the landscapers post that and go, wait a minute, so we can volunteer to do that, but we can't work to do that. And then of course they post pictures like the front of Costco where there's like 50,000 people standing in line. And then, and then some dude on, on a riding mower out in a field all by themselves. And it's become kind of an interesting dialogue amongst um, myself and, and some of my colleagues in the community um, about the dynamics of this because they're really concerned about their businesses and the economy of things, right? Um, and, and we'll get to the economy of health here in a minute, but they're also very aware of uh, the reality of, of the death tolls, you know, and things like that. Um, and they're trying to balance that. Before Governor Gretchen actually put her foot down and said, no, landscape companies are not essential business, they were divided on that. You know, some were like, you know, what kind of a guy am I to have five trucks go out tooling down the road when we're supposed to be standing at home? And it, so to me, I'm actually kind of glad that she kind of put her foot down and just settled it because it, it probably squashed some some um, local uh, rifts between different companies and she just said, don't do it. And, it and it made it easier. Although there's a bunch of them that are staying up late at night and sweating. And, and you and I, we've worked together in this community on like uh, food uh, uh, availability issues and thing like, things like that. And, and you and I both know that economy correlates directly to health issues. There's, there's kind of a correlation between the two, you know? Um, 
Matter of fact, I've got some statistics that blow my mind. So this is an opportunity for, for me to grumble a little bit. Um, so the, the, so I, was, I've, I go online and I look at daily reports on, on um, in, infections and deaths, right? So, so like right now, the US, I had to do the math myself, but right now the US is right now uh, averaging around 2.9% deaths per infections. In New York, it's 3.6%. In New Jersey, it's 2.4%. In Michigan, it's 4%. And in California, it's 2.3%. And I don't wanna be a negative Nancy, but I mean, there has got to be a reality that the economy of Detroit, right? And the economy of the suburbs of New York City are two different economies. And when we see death rates increase, it's not because doctors in Michigan are stupid. You know, it's because of the imbalance of things, right? So we, you and I both understand that the economy plays into health, right? You and I both also understand that if we have this interview face-to-face, -face, we jeopardize multiple layers of people that we come into contact with. And the question is, is how do you strike that balance? So from your professional perspective, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, and, and this is the, uh, the area that a lot of leaders, not just in the United States, but throughout the world are um, trying to battle. And it, it's almost like the supply and demand um, ideas of, of how you retail things and how, how, how the economy works, right, is, you know, how many, how many people have to get this to really limit exposures or how many mm -hmm. um, people like in your community have to be suffering before you can actually start making a lot of those decisions about to limit things and stuff like that. And the more you limit, um, the less, you know, interaction people are going to have at place X, but they might, you know, have more interactions with each other um, at another place. So, so your, yeah, your question about, you know, how we do this, I don't, I don't think there is a perfect solution. There's no uh, silver bullet for how to, how to do this. You kind of have to play it, play it by ear and figure out who is, who is most at risk. I, th I think that's a, a very important yeah. thing we have to identify immediately. Um, and looking all, at all of this data, it is, it is almost scalable, Garth, from, from 80 year olds are at a higher risk than people who are 70, than, and they have a higher risk than people who are 60. So it really is like age plays a really, really important factor in here. And, you know, if you look at like what happened in Seattle, Washington, where they had like a nursing facility attributed to most of their cases and definitely most of their deaths um, in the early outbreak of this. And, and all that was saying is that this virus got into an extremely vulnerable population. Unfortunately, I can't speak too much about who is dying in Detroit area or who is dying in New York areas. But ideally, if you have an, if, well, idealistically, if you have an older population that gets infected with this, their crude death rate is going to be higher right. versus a younger population who gets right. infected with this. Right. We know about 70 to 80% of people who get infected with COVID-19 will have no symptoms or maybe some slight symptoms that, that really aren't diagnosable for COVID-19. Maybe it's like a slight cough or something like that. So with, with that being so high, it's really hard to know if somebody's got it or not, which I think 
drives us in this direction to make very, very um, broad, sweeping movements of, you know, what's essential work and what's not essential work. Um, I think the the new masking criteria that we have out is is pretty directly correlated with that is the CDC has recommends now if you're ever going out into a congregate setting when you meet with all your um, associates, you guys should all be wearing masks. And the mask is not to protect you, a healthy person. It's to protect a person who might be infected. I don't have COVID-19, but saying I did, if I had COVID-19 and I put a mask on myself, we're always putting the mask on the sick person. Like this is still the I same. Know. Saying now we're saying everybody in the community might be the sick person, so let's put a mask on those people. It's it's a total flip of the mask concept. Like it was always like if you put a mask on, you're basically jealousy jealously trying to protect yourself. Now, if you see someone in the store with a bandana on, whether they realize it or not, it's probably one of the most altruistic things a person can do because what they're doing is saying, I really don't know, but what I do know is that if I am affected you know, my breath, my spit, all the things that come out of my face that I don't think comes out of it could infect everybody else. So now the masks have completely flipped their purpose than they were like even a week ago. It's, it's. Well, no, I think, I think Garth, I think our, our misunderstanding was before that. I, I think what you were saying is flipped is, was our misinterpretation all along. The whole time is if you have a nurse, nurse X going into four different people's room, one of them has the flu, and Nurse X picks that flu up, and now she's going into all those rooms, she's gonna spread it. Like that, that's the nurse is gonna spread that. So then what you're telling me is that even, even wearing masks is part of the ethical conversation. At one point we saw it as something that we were doing for ourselves, and now a mask is something that we're doing for everybody else, but what you're saying is that's really how it should have been from the get-go. We should have been thinking about protecting everybody else the entire time because if you're the nurse that picks it up, the last thing you want to do is walk into somebody's room and spread it to five different rooms. Yeah, that's the idea that, that we've been practicing and, and it makes sense. Now that we're in this kind of like community spread uh, type of situation, we're assuming that anybody could be spreading the virus now. Right. Um, so that's, so that's when the recommendation comes to mass. So let me ask a couple of questions here. Um, who in our community makes the decisions that trickle down such large uh, mandates, like don't go to work or don't go to the store, one person in Meyer, or, you know, who in our community makes those decisions? Is it, is it local government? Is it state government? So, so right now we're acting under governor's orders. In Michigan, Governor Whitmer did declare the, the stay at home order. Um, obviously a federal order could have came anytime sooner, but now that the state, the state has decided that this is what we're going to operate under, that is what we're operating under. Local does have, um, we, we could have made that declaration a long time ago. Um, our health officer does have the ability to court order you, um, to stay in exactly where you are right, right by that plant in that house. In my chair. Um, so they could do that. If we know that, um, for example, somebody with tuberculosis, I think this is where a lot of this comes from. If we identify you, we know you have tuberculosis and we know you're an imminent health threat. We have the ability to, to isolate you. Isolation, symptomatic, right. quarantine, asymptomatic. Yeah. We have the ability to isolate you in your home with a court order. 
Now, we don't like to do that a lot. We would much rather say, Garth, we really, really strongly encourage you to stay home. Right. Right. What could we possibly do that would help encourage you to stay home? And that's kind of, kind of the way we go. Did you have those conversations at the health department? Did at some point before the governor said, let's bring down the hammer, did you guys kind of talk? Because our county, so as much as everything's on the east side, on the west side, our county is the county that is blossoming, right? And I'm yep. quite sure that it's from the influence from Chicago and the fire that is uh, burning and blowing over this direction. Did you guys ever have that conversation or did you not have to get to that point? Yeah, so, so when those broad brushstrokes were made was mm -hmm. when the east side of the state had their first cases. We didn't have any cases at that point. Mm -hmm. So no, we were not in a position that we were ready to start canceling schools or we were ready to start um, telling everybody to shelter in place. One of the, the metrics that you're using, Garth, to evaluate this is the number of cases. I can tell you right now, we're going to have more cases than probably Kalamazoo because it, Kalamazoo's testing ability is not as great as ours. We have an awesome relationship with our hospital system, who, is the, who has the second biggest healthcare system in Michigan, which is Spectrum Health. We are able to partner with them to do some testing, and it has led us to this ability to test people who we think are going to be COVID positive. That, that's the no, idea. It's not Chicago. It's just that we've got a really awesome healthcare system. Yes, but it actually makes us look like we have a really bad healthcare system, doesn't it? Because we're so good at testing now, we're able to find more positive people. Dude, the healthcare system's going to get trounced in this, even when they do it right. So here's, a, here's another question. Is there like a list of things that somebody who's in the position, say your health official, who's the health official? It's, is it uh, Nikki? No. Yeah, she's a health officer. Okay. So is there, is there a list that, that Nikki has that says, once these are all checked off, I'm shutting the whole county down? Like, like what drives some of the decision making? You're, you're Governor Gretchen, and you've got to decide, do I shut down our economy? which in Michigan has not always been great. We've had some tough times with job uh, unemployment rates. Or do I shut down um, homes and save bodies? How do they make that decision? Is there anything that, that, or is this just completely driven by the individual who is in that position? Yeah, so I, I hope in democracy, we never have the point where it's just completely driven by the individual. We all have checks and balances. We all have um, people we can consult with. Um, Wretched Whitmer has um, Dr. Janae Khaldun, who is her medical officer, so she is able to, to speak mm -hmm. closely with her. Um, she has the ability in the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services to generate, to consult with groups of epidemiologists um, to get their inputs on situations and things like that. However, this situation has so many moving parts. It's, this is a national pandemic, right? We have never had one of these in my lifetime and we'll probably never have one um, again in my lifetime, let alone like your kids who are granted maybe 10, 20 years younger than me. Right. Um, probably never have one in their lifetime either. Nope. These, these are very rare. They don't come along, but we do plan for them. Um, we have pandemic flu preparedness plans. Long-term care facilities have those plans. Universities have those plans. So we have these plans. They've just got about two inches of dust sitting on top. <laughs> of them. So a lot of it was, you know, dusting these out and trying to go down this checklist of where do we go, you know, when this happens, when this happens, when this happens. But there's, you know, this component of it, um, and I don't know if you've heard much of this, we're all talking about the R-naught, which is what is the, the transmissibility 
of this virus to other people. Right. For example, like measles has an R, R naught that's up like 10 or 12, something like that. So it means per one person who gets infected, 10 to 12 people could probably are, are likely to get infected as well. If wow. we have the idea, if we can get this R naught to about 1.2, that we can really, really, really greatly reduce the spread of this illness in our communities and, and therefore defeat it um, in the long run. So calculating what that R naught is very difficult, especially mm -hmm. when most testing only came online at the end of February. So we were unable to really test people to the capacity that we right. can now to really figure out what's going on in our communities. So, and, and I would assume it would have to do with human behavior too. Like how much people are interacting with each other is gonna increase or de decrease that, right? Which is why we made a lot of these, Gretchen Whitmer made a lot of these orders and whether you like them or not, um, this can directly affect the R not, and we're seeing it in our case, our case investigations. Part of what the health department does is we follow up with every positive individual. If you get a positive COVID-19 test, we're calling you. If your friend gets a positive COVID-19 test and you guys are hanging out, we're going to call you too to just say, hey, there's, you've been in contact with somebody who's been COVID-19 positive, and we'd like you to stay in quarantine, meaning you don't have any symptoms, for 14 days since the last time you saw them and you were close, you were close together. So our number of contacts, the number of people who have been in contact with our positives has greatly reduced. It's, it's been like on average, we would have six to eight people, one person, one positive would have six to eight people. Now we're seeing like three to four people that oh, they've yeah. had contact with. So that means that our r not is going to be influenced directly by just social distancing because you're no longer in contact with as many people throughout the day as you as you were two months ago. And now we know that it, there's less of a chance that people will get infected um, from something like COVID-19. So that's, yeah, one of the strategies is the social distancing. Obviously, there's the, the component we're not talking about is what happens when we start telling people that they can't go to work anymore, that they need to work from home. What happens when we cancel schools? I don't think that has been done since the 30, World War II movie, is when schools were actually canceled like this. So yeah, these are unprecedented times and they didn't have e-learning back then. So we do have an advantage in some ways that we can switch, kind of switch our gears over a little bit. Do yeah, something. no, we've been very busy at the university and all my students probably are hating life. Um, but let's, um, we're already over. I was supposed to keep this short, but it's way too interesting. So I've got two more questions for you. We'll make them quick. All right. All right. You're the epidemiologist. Let's just say, for instance, you're the epidemiologist of Berrien County, right? And Berrien right. County, say, it borders a gigantic lake. And the only place a cruise ship can dock is in the St. Joseph Harbor. But there's 200 people on there that are possibly infected or showing signs of COVID-19. As the epidemiologist, do you recommend to the leadership that they dock and you save their lives or they don't dock and you save the lives of the people in your community? Yeah, so this is the question, you're driving down the road, you lose control, do you hit this person, are those people over there kind right. of thing. Right. Uh, either way you answer it, it's never a good solution, right? Um, so candidly obviously i do the, the best option that's available to me what would you say frames the tenants that drive your ethics this will this will be the last one what what are some of the main tenants that drive your ethics as really i mean you're a servant to the community which we appreciate by the way 
Um, what I mean, what is it that that drives the servants of our community? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, as, as a public health official, uh, this is much easier to answer than the dialect because <laughs> being a community servant means you want your community to do sure. well um, and to prosper. So, like, what ethically motivates us that way? And man, I want to say it's more than just optimism, right? Um, we right, all we right, all right. see, I think, the good in people. And, and want them to do well and have the best life uh, that they possibly can. And, and honestly, that, that is what I want in people. It's more like the coach mentality where you see someone and you just want like success for, for sure. them and the individuals right. and, or the groups of people as well. Um, I think there is, it may be a little, but of it is hopefully not insanity because we're trying new things and expecting different results. But a lot of the times in public health, we end up getting the same results that we had. And, and then overall, I think we just have uh, hope for people um, to do good things and to, to, be, to be better people, to better themselves um, for that. So I, I, I always like drawing the, the, the parallel like between political divides that we have. And, and I think whether you're, you're Democrat or Republican, um, public service is public service. And I sure. actually believe you want the best thing for Absolutely. people. Yeah. Um, however, you know, there's just some nuances in it, um, but I think they get to the same picture in the same way. One is more of a, a societal, better the person lift them up. One is more lift the society up so they can lift the person up kind of thing. So I think sure, sure. You know, that ethical decision kind of happens within you. Um, whatever you think is the most efficient. We all think we're right, no matter what. You wouldn't have an opinion if you didn't yes, do so we all, we all think we're right and, and we have a solution or a way of doing something that we think is the right way to do it. And how could you ever think any different? This is the right way. But I, you know, I challenge a lot of people and, you know, I'm 30 years old now. I, I challenge a lot of myself too, to, to think maybe there's another way to do this. Maybe actually um, what somebody has to say could add value in a different perspective to what I think. Or maybe I've heard it a hundred times and this is, is, this is going to be the same thing. But I do give that, that, that first part a little glimmer of hope and a little chance uh, to say that maybe actually what this person is going to tell me is valuable. And I think it's really important to hear people out before you make these decisions. Just as I'm sure um, our elected officials are doing when they're making these large decisions about cruise ships or about when to close schools versus when to keep them open, or when to tell everybody in the community to stay home, or when to tell a business that they're not essential service, kind of a thing like that. So that's a tough call. It's a tough call that even even though I feel I have ethic, and being a friend of you, I would say that you have significant ethic. I'm glad as your friend and for myself that neither one of us have to make that decision because that's just a crap decision at the end of the day. Same. So as much as we have to deal with the decisions that are made. I think sometimes it is great that other people are making them. <laughs> so then what we've determined in this interview is that it's good if somebody else has COVID and we don't. And it's good if somebody else makes all those decisions and we don't. And you don't have a die list. Those are the three things that we've walked away from this with. Yeah, well, I would add in there too, the best vote 
is someone else's. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. All right. Especially if it has sick people on it and it's off somebody else's coast also. All right. There you go. All right. <laughs> we're bringing it to an end. I really appreciate it. I'm going to pause now. This week, I'd like to thank Guy Miller and the Berrien County Health Department for being my guest. It was an insightful view into how the places become what they are and especially how we respond to them in times of trouble. Thank you for watching another episode of Place by Design. I'd like to thank my team at Rootbound for their continued support. Of course, we also thank our generous guests that join us on the edge of the lake. Please share if you enjoyed yourself and plan to come back for more. And don't go away mad. Just go away.